Hancock County. Since 1982, offering maintenance, storage, and restoration for powerboats and sailboats. Also offering dockage on Mount Desert Island. Redfernboat.com Back by popular demand, it's WERU's Spring Fling Music and Gear Sale on Saturday, April 28th from 11 to 4 at the Belfast Boathouse, 34 Commercial Street, Belfast. Not only does WERU provide you with incredible and diverse music on the air, our sale will feature plenty of other ways to get your music fix in the form of used records, CDs, instruments, and other music gear sold by area vendors and WERU, plus refreshments and music provided by WERU DJs. And if that's not enough, we are thrilled to also announce that this year's music sale will be part of Belfast's Free Range Music Festival. Find more information about the festival at freerangemusicfestival.com and about the WERU Spring Fling Music and Gear Sale at weru.org. Don't let Saturday, April 28th, come and go without getting to Belfast and immersing yourself in music. Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at mainboats.com. It's 10 o'clock on the dot, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. That's Schooner Fair right there, piping in boat talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor, and around the world at WERU.org. Boat Talk is a call-in radio show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, here for uh, an hour of... Uh, Boating questions, boating discussions, and hopefully maybe a discussion with you, too. And we have with us a special guest today. It's, this is the very first time that boat, uh, boat Talk has gone on air with a pilot. Usually, we don't know where we're going. We don't know where we're going to end up. But we have an actual pilot on board today. David Galinas is here. He's a uh, Penobscot Bay pilot. And uh, David may be the one who can answer a question that if... Um, you banish a boat, if you banish a dog from a boat, is that disembarking? Disembarking, <laughs> I got that one. That pilots are very good at disembarking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Alan and I do boat talk. We're, we're uh, uh, taking up a tradition that was started by uh, Joel White and Maynard Bray a long time ago here on on uh, WERU, the community radio. Yes, gone now, to the dog since then, hasn't it? Well, but that, that would be my point. Nowadays, uh, we have baby talk as well. There's dog talk. I've been teasing the dog talk people. They owe us a little tribute, you know what I'm saying, as, as the, uh, the head. You know, we've been here longer than those other people, okay? We want a little respect. We want a little kickback. Um, have you heard the newest one? Oh, 
Cat Chat. Cat Chat. Oh, Cat no. Cat Chat <laughs> has now come to WERU. Oh. <laughs> it's going to be on some Monday or another, and... Uh, yeah, we'd say the place is going to the dogs, but again, cat chat. Cat chat, yeah. yeah. There's some sort of a clause in that, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, please. He's the punny one, Alan Sprague. Um, I have to make a correction from last month first before we get on with uh, going forward today. Um, last month during our discussion, I mentioned that there was a midwater trawl, a huge one out there that was um, I, 13 uh, 747s wide, I believe I described it, able to take... 13747s in. Um, I've seen the, the video that, that that comes from. It's an interesting video, and I recommend it. It's called End of the Line. It's a National Geographic documentary. You get it through your library system, End of the Line. But anyway, in that video, it shows uh, what I described as uh, 13737s. It is actually 13, but the, the if you visualize the mouth of the net, it's sort of an oval shape, and so you can get uh, a row of five seven. 47s, and then another row of five on top of that, and then a row of three on top of that. So it's not 13 747s wide, as I said. It actually just takes in 13 in a different configuration, but it's still huge. The point remains, it's a big friggin' net. Yes. So anyway, I, I sit uh, corrected, even though it is a drag. I've been uh, bragging up a, a uh, book uh, called... Uh, Ocean Soul, and it is by a, a National Geographic photographer named Brian Scarry, and uh, it is just stunning in the, the pictures that he has in there and also the text. One project that he took on was to photograph dragging from underwater. Now, to photograph a whale or a seal, you have to spend a long time underwater to just uh, be one with the habitat and, and fit into the background and, and get people comfortable with you. Think about taking pictures of a dragger. You have to be down there near where the net is dragging. They can't see you from up top. Um, chances is that big net come by and, and might want to drag you yeah. up too. <laughs> not a not a uh, not an easy proposition to photograph. There's some stunning fo photographs of nets dragging across the bottom. In the text, he he uh, made a good point. He says, imagine we wanted to catch a deer, okay, and we went out in the woods with. Um, bulldozers that were uh, separated by a large chain drag and we started at one end of the wood and we went to the other and and we dragged uh, this chain drag through the woods destroying all the Taking trees everything you get everything in the way and it caught all the uh, uh, it caught the deer it might catch a bear it might catch a Bambi uh, chipmunk uh, squirrels <laughs> burr I mean you know Birds, and tear yeah. up the habitat at the same time would we allow that of course not <laughs> But that's what a dragger does underwater where it can't be seen. The bottom drags, yes. Yeah, and again, kind of hard on the bottom, let alone the fish that they catch. So uh, Ocean Soul, Brian Scarry, a very highly recommended book, found it at the library just recently. Anyway, we're doing boat talk this morning. We have Dave Jolinas, and he's uh, one of the uh, Penobscot Bay pilots, and we're going to talk to him about stuff that's coming and going in, in uh, Penobscot Bay, the uh, uh, Port of Searsport, and, and so on. We've got a couple other little notes that we want to start with. I was hoping Giffy Full was in here this morning, but he, he uh, hasn't been along yet. Found a book in here with with Giffy Full in it, and it's called uh, Marblehead's First Harbor. And Giffy's, Giffy's uh, part is so small, I think I could read it really quickly. And uh, this guy, you Bishop, he's a local uh, Marblehead fisherman. They went into financial services and realized he really wanted to be a fisherman. 
It's a nice little book. Great fishing stories in here. Marblehead's First Harbor. You, you Bishop and uh, Brenda Boomer wrote this. Says in here, uh, uh, you was looking for a new boat. Giffy Full was the foremost marine surveyor on the east coast of the United States at this time. He was somewhat older than I and a good friend, and he had grown up in my neighborhood. He still lived in Marblehead, and I sought him out for advice. He said in that special high-pitched voice of his, go see Walter McInnes. He's the best powerboat designer on the coast. And again, uh, sorry, Giffy's special high-pitched voice is not <laughs> here this morning. He is a bit of a character. And, and it's not that he used to be the most experienced surveyor on the coast. I would, I would say that's, a, that's not a contest for our friend Giffy Falls. Sorry he's not yeah. here this morning. Um, speaking of, uh, you know, how to build boats, how about the boat school down in Eastport? It is now owned by the Friends of the Boat School, and they're looking hard for students. We've been on this for a long time, and, and uh, we highly recommend the boat trades just in general. It's not just a job. It can be an adventure. And for more information about uh, the upcoming year at the boat school here and maybe getting someone you know in as a student, give them a call, 83, uh, I'm sorry, 853 0990-FOBS, uh, Friends of the Boat School, FOBS at MyFairPoint.net or at TheBoatSchool.net. Get a hold of those folks. We'll plow through a couple things uh, really quickly here. I thought this was really, really cool. Have you seen the elver nets on the sides of uh, lots of uh, coastal rivers right now? And they're up and down all over the place. The price of uh, little glass eels right now is over $2,000 a pound and has been hovering in that area. <laughs> and from the Ellsworth American, by some estimates, fishermen pulled close to a half a million dollars worth of elvers out of the Union River alone on opening day. Wow. Half a million dollars in one night. Have you ever eaten one of those? No, and, and uh, they <laughs> fried some up on the Channel 7 News just a little while ago. And the little glass eels are, what, an inch and a half, two inches long, kind of skinny. And that's not really what people eat, though. These eels are bought and shipped over to the Far East. To as, grow. Yeah, to grow. And yeah. they grow them out to full size. Uh, and then mm -hmm. they chop them up and make sushi okay. and dinner out of them. They go into fish ponds. Yep. And they take our eels, which are going up our rivers and into our... our uh, uh, ponds and stuff, and they, they uh, freshwater farm them over in the Far East, aquaculture. And uh, at $2,000 a pound or so, this is a cash fishery. Mm. Think about that. Um, there is now a lot of, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of competition for the buyers as well. Uh, there are local buyers that have always been here, and now there's a lot of Koreans who have come in, apparently, to uh, supply as low and... and uh, you know, in the Far East, and supply is good here. We don't catch all the eels. There's days and times that you're not allowed to catch them. That's not a not a barrier across the streams there. You have to allow some some still in. But it has also spurred a great uh, gold rush in that little fishery. It's not a fishery. You need a lot of capital to get into. You need a net or a, a net that is set up on the side of the stream or a hand net as well. You can do it with a hand net. Mm. A pair of rubber boots and a hand net, you don't have a big, you don't have to buy a big boat. You don't have to get a license that is uh, uh, all that difficult to get. They're limited. Um, boys have been poaching on each other. Boys without licenses have been in there, uh, boys and girls, actually. And uh, it can get rough at times, I guess. But uh, half a million dollars out of the Union River on opening night alone. 
Oh. Yeah, think about that for a little while. Uh, resource extraction is uh, pretty powerful sometimes. That's amazing. Well, why, why can't we just let some of those elvers or do we let some of those elvers go up to the ponds or wherever they go here locally and then let them mature and then sell them in as a finished product for probably an even a higher price? Oh, you're saying we could aquaculture <laughs> and grow them out. Not even aquaculture. It would be natural, you know. Wow. Um, what an interesting idea. There is controversy right now. Our friend uh, Joe Parada, he's a, uh, a WERU volunteer as well, he wants to farm mussels and oysters in uh, Morgan Bay over here in East Blue Hill. And the neighbors are deaf on that. And he is not going to put feed into the water, and, and his mussels and oysters don't uh, mm-hmm. poop out on the bottom like, like a salmon pen does. They actually filter the water and make it cleaner. And he will have floating uh, sacks on the water there, and the neighbors don't want that at all. Hmm. Not in my backyard. And uh, you know, as again, we'll be talking about what's coming in out of uh, Penobscot Bay this morning with the Penobscot Bay pilot sitting right here, Dave, and and not in my backyard. So, uh, yeah, tricky, tricky, tricky. Yeah. One more little note before we get to our real business here. Um, the come boating people in Belfast, they went to Massachusetts to the uh, 23rd annual snow row in Hull, Massachusetts back on March 10th, and they won uh, a couple of races there. There were 108 boats with more than 350 wow. people competing. Wow. Yeah. And they won. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, we're in a gig race that's a 3.7, uh, three and three quarter mile long course. Where it's March, okay. And... Uh, you know, the time for that's like 34 minutes, uh, 39 minutes for the women, and, and the men and the women both uh, scored quite highly in, in their classes uh, at the snow road uh, down in Hull, Massachusetts. Come boating, great way to get on the water, and they're located in Belfast. You want to check them out maybe at comeboating.org. Yep, they put on all kinds of events year-round, so if they, they mean it in their name, Come Boating. Yep, good old friends of ours, and uh, we talk about them a lot. And The list of crew members here, I won't go through it, but there's a lot of, a lot of uh, usual suspects in there, people whose names you would recognize. And while we're rambling on, there's one other uh, historical note here from the um, Ellsworth American that I thought was pretty good. Uh, have you ever been to Lemoyne State Park? Yeah. Down at the end of the road in Lemoyne there. Yep. Um, if you go into the uh, the uh, uh, fish people there, the not the DEP, the uh, uh, Marine Marine Police there, uh, oh. they have an office right there. Okay. okay. And in the office is an old photograph from, from the early 1900s of Lemoyne State Park. It will blow you away. It was the East Coast coaling station for the United States Navy at the time. Um, back in the days of the Great White Fleet, and there were uh, piers and derricks mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, <laughs> conveyors, and, and you would not believe the setup they had there. Mm-hmm. Yep. So from the uh, Ellsworth American here, word has been received that the U.S. Uh, US collier will arrive around April 15th to remove the coal from the station. It will also take away the steamer and some of the barges. This is accepted by people here as substantiating the reports published in the newspapers to the effect that this station will be abandoned yep, from uh, 1912. And how did that station get there in the first place? James G. Blaine, the man from Maine. He was huh. a famous U.S. Senator, Secretary of State. He ran for president, lost to William Henry Harrison. He had a summer Over place. Cleveland. 
Uh, yes, I think you're right. Uh, he had a summer place in Bar Harbor. That's why that colon station was there for about 10, 10, 15 years. It was all about James G. Blaine, and it, the United States Navy was never a big fan of the location. Hmm. But that powerful senator from Maine, okay? <laughs> and we're Pol talking Politics that, never ends, though. Uh, I guess the... Uh, the idea would be things are the same, the same, the same uh, we have, world. We have a phone call, yeah. so let's go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi, it's Gray from Hancock. Hey, Gray. Um, Mr. Mike Joyce, um, i got a little advice for you. Um, terms like not in my backyard are the kind of terms that people use when they run out of arguments and they want to insult the person they're talking to. And I, I think you shouldn't throw them around so easily. Uh, the people who m maybe want to preserve the environment around their houses are not necessarily doing it for some uh, bad reason, and should. And I just don't think you should use those terms so easily. At any rate, that's all I got to say. Bye bye. I uh, appreciate it, Gray, and I thank you. I um, again, we can't take an editorial stand here on boat talk, even about fish stuff, and. If anything, trying to uh, give you a short view of, of uh, what's going on over there. I appreciate the advice, though. Uh, thank you. We have another phone call already. Hello, good morning. 1-866-625-9378 if you'd like to join in, too. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. This is Captain Yeo. Good morning. I'm listening to the show, and I just wanted to make sure I heard right. Did you say they, they row a course of... Three miles in half an hour? Three and three-quarter miles, uh, 34 minutes for the men, 39 for the women. That's wow. averaging about six knots. Yep. Um, That's some serious oar work. Oh, it, it'll give you a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> now, Havila Hawkins once clocked me at, at three knots in my peapod for, I don't know, 50 yards. <laughs> <laughs> So six knots around a three-and-a-half-mile course, that is really athletic. And frankly, I would love to see that. You can go down to Belfast and get into the gig and help them row it, yo. They take uh, guest rowers, you know. Bring your okay. GPS and you can document it. Huh. That gig's a long, very Water narrow line boat. Line. It is. Water I've seen link. them. They're very, they're very extreme. And I, I'm still surprised that, to hear that they're that fast, but... Gee, why not? In in the 18th century, the British government outlawed eight oars on board gigs because an eight-oared gig could outrow the fastest and most weatherly British revenue cutters. <laughs> so it was not permitted to have eight oars in a gig, maximum six oars, and if they caught you with eight, well, the crown was the crown. So anyway, thanks for putting on this wonderful show, and thanks to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, y'all. Yeah, good morning. Now, I guess we're all caught up on uh, all the no, other business. We have another Another phone call? call, great. one 625 9378 Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. My name's Daniel. Hello, I got Daniel. A question for your, I, thank you. I got a question for your pilot. I, um... I've been through the Panama Canal on a tiny sailboat, and obviously you have to have a pilot for that. And, you know, it, it, obviously it's also the same pilot that takes these huge boats through, and I guess the canal isn't so hard because if you mess up, you're just going to hit one of the walls. But in, how does a pilot, 
how does a pilot handle a huge boat that he's never been on before? The turning radius, the momentum. How do you do all that with the captain standing next to you, who I imagine is just, I would be terrified. So how do you do that? That's a great question, Daniel. And can I ask you, would that vessel uh, going through the, Cape, uh, I'm sorry, the Panama Canal there, would that be Plum Belly? No, her name was Sparrow. Okay. And, uh, Different Daniel. Her name was Sparrow. She's 25 feet. Yeah. Nice. Um, again, that's, uh, that is the question, and, and uh, we are going to talk to Dave about that. Part of the fascinating thing to me is um, you board another vessel, Dave, Pilot Dave there. These people have got this vessel very competently across the ocean, but now they've come close to the shore. You've right. now vo boarded the vessel and say, okay, I've got it now, boys. You gotta, you know, I'm the expert now. When you board that vessel, you're in command of the vessel, aren't you? No, you're actually not in command. The captain of a vessel is always in command of the vessel. The pilot is um, responsible for the direction of the navigation of that vessel. Practically speaking, you're giving the commands. Yes, they're following your orders. Legally speaking, the captain is always still ultimately responsible. So, um, as Daniel suggested uh, with his uh, concern of the captain, the captains are concerned because they are overall responsible, so they have to work closely with the pilot. Um, to safely navigate the vessel up the bay. The reality of the situation is um, it's a very cordial, long-established professional relationship. So when we board a vessel, we do a master pilot exchange, we do a, a transfer conference, we take a look at the route, we talk about the weather, the docking, the transit that's in front of us. And then, practically speaking, we give the helm orders, we give the engine orders, we control the speed. Uh, if a captain sees a pilot doing something that he has a concern about, he's obligated to step in. And at the very least, you know, ask the cap the pilot why that order was given, and if he's really concerned, he should countermand the order. But that doesn't that doesn't really happen. I've only seen that happen once in ten years deep sea. I saw that happen once. And the captain again, he's standing right behind you. You're conning his ship right now when things are are getting close to rocks and piers, and and again, uh, lots of obstructions. So, right, right. Uh, the liability it's all about liability. The captain is ultimately liable. The captain's ultimately responsible. Uh, uh, pilotage in Maine, as in most coastal U.S. states, is compulsory. So these captains have to take a U.S. licensed pilot, a state pilot in whatever state that they're um, traversing. But to get to Daniel's point, I think he was asking about how do you know you, you're on different types of ships. Um, this is where the apprenticeship and the training comes in. You know, you don't, you don't just, it's not like you go to Maine Maritime, you get a license, you get a pilot's endorsement, and then you're a pilot. It takes years and years and years to get to the position where you're in um, directing the navigation of a loaded tanker up and down uh, Penobscot Bay or Casco Bay. So what happens is over that time, as you're making all of these trips, you're acquiring knowledge, you're acquiring local knowledge, you're getting the expertise of the pilots that were before you, and, and you basically just acquire a feel for these ships. I mean, practically speaking, most loaded 50,000-ton tankers are pretty similar in the way that they handle. Um, most light freighters are pretty typical in the way that they handle. They all tend to be single-screw vessels. Some may or may not have bow thrusters. Some may or may not have fancy Schilling or Becker rudders, but most of them have conventional spade rudders. So you just learn to appreciate the handling characteristics of those types of vessels. And just like anything else, the more that you do a job repetitively, the more that you acquire a feel for that type of vessel that you're handling. So um, it, really, it really comes down to just doing the job so many hundreds and hundreds of times over again that you literally acquire a feel for that ship. You can go on the same ship, same vessel, different conditions, fully loaded and light, 
empty after discharge, and the handling characteristics are completely different. Mm. But you learn to you learn to appreciate that over the time of course of many years doing the job time and time again. Initially under the tutelage of a uh, you know senior pilot, and then on your own as you're doing your work. That's one of our great boat talk principles: experience. The only thing you can't fake, and it takes time. <laughs> You know, and yeah. and you're talking about experience right there. Yeah, well, I was down at the uh, Maine Maritime Academy last night, actually, at the uh, Maine Maritime Student Life Achievement uh, Banquet, and that was one of the pieces of advice that I had for the students who were at the academy is take advantage of the wonderful waterfront that's down there while you're, you're spending your time at Maine Maritime because those same principles that are going to affect you, sailing a little mercury or a shield or docking a, a, a whaleboat on the Maine wa- Maritime waterfront, the, the current, the pivot point, the rudder power, backing power, propeller effect, all of those principles are exactly the same on a 600-foot tanker as they are on a 32-foot whaleboat. It's just a question of scale. Yeah, and mass. And <laughs> right, mass. that's great. Thank you very much for da- your answer. That was da- pretty good. Daniel, hold on for just a second. You went through the Panama Canal with a pilot. What would that cost you, and how much uh, help was the pilot to you? Did you guys have a good time together? Um, let me think. It wasn't expensive. Uh, uh, what was funny about it was that there must have been eight people that came on board to measure different parts of this boat. 25 and feet that, long. Yeah. You know, <laughs> someone, someone, a separate person would come on to measure from the mast to the bow sprit, someone else, you know, the width of the boat. It's like everyone had a special job. And then the other part was the pilot comes on. You have to hire four people to manage the lines. So altogether, there were seven of us on this 25-foot boat. You got to give them lunch, so it was it was pretty fun, and uh, you have to be able to get through it in one day. So we had to put it. We didn't didn't have an engine. We had to rent a 25 horsepower engine and put a bracket on the boat. It was a fun day. Wow. Yeah. Where were you on where were you on your way to and from, Daniel? Um. I was coming from New London, Connecticut, through the canal, around South America. So we went around Cape Horn, and then we, uh, I was alone for a lot of the trip. And then I kind of bounced my way up the coast and uh, through Bermuda and back home. It took almost a year. It was a great experience. Um, have we spoken before, Daniel? Yeah, we have. This is, yeah. Yeah, and you wrote a book about it, didn't you? Yeah, My Old Man in the Sea. Yeah. I'm sorry we haven't got to talking to you yet, but uh, not for lack of wanting to, just uh, disor- general disorganization, Daniel. No rush, it's fine. Yeah, My Old Man in the Sea, Daniel Hayes, right? Yep, that's it. Yeah, recommended as well. Good to talk to you this morning. All right, thank you. You yeah. too. All right, we are doing boat talk this morning. Uh, Mike Joyce, Alan Sprague. We got Dave Jelinas in. He's from the Penobscot Bay Pilots. And... Uh, you know, we want to talk to Dave about pilotage and what coming in and out of Penobscot Bay. Um, you know, at the beginning, uh, basically, what's the job of the pilots? Uh, again, the the, uh, the mandate that we have is to safely conduct commerce in and out of Maine's uh, coastal waters. Our responsibility is to, to uh, conduct the transit, the safe navigation of the vessel. We, we're working closely with the vessel's bridge team. That's a very common term in um, nautical training these days is bridge team, bridge team management. And the pilot is technically not part of the ship's bridge team because that consists of ship's crew only, but we work closely with the bridge team. We, um, you know, we answer any questions they may have. We explain to them, for example, on this ship that I'm showing on the computer that you guys are watching, 
Um, the ship arrives at the pilot station off of Monhegan Island. I ask the captain about the condition of the vessel, if the gear has been tested, if everything is in, f in good working order, radars, ARPA, um, if there's any gyro error. And when I'm assured that everything's in functioning condition, uh, I tell them, okay, we're going to go up the Penobscot Bay recommended route. We're going to pick up our tugboats at a particular time, two tugs, tugs lines. The state of the tide is this. And, and if there's any questions that he has, that's the time to ask. Somewhere along the way, between the time I board and the time we pick up the tugs in Searsport, I'll uh, ask a few more detailed questions about the maneuvering characteristics of the vessels, and a controllable pitch, propeller, fixed pitch, bow thruster, how effective is the bow thruster if they have it, um, and just try and get some insight on how the ship might handle when we're slowed down doing the docking evolution. So it's a lot of information exchange, and um, you know, again, we're controlling. We we give the engine orders, we give the rudder orders, and um, work with them closely on any questions that they have. But usually it's pretty straightforward. They ask a few questions, and then off we go, and it's up to the mate on watch to kind of monitor my progress. I've never had a problem if a mate has a question about when am I going to turn or did I miss a turn, you know, speaking out, I encourage them to do that. But that doesn't happen very often. We have uh, spread out in front of us here a laptop uh, running a navigation <coughs> program showing the ship laying in. We're going past Owl's Head right now. We're right of course about 96 feet, but we expect that to not be a big problem. And uh, you're working also with local tug company, the tugs out of Belfast there, yep. Fournier Tugs. Uh, Penobscot Bay Tractor Tug Company is the local uh, tug provider. Um, they bought the company from a couple of great guys, John Worth and Duke Tomlin, about, I don't know if it was quite 10 years ago, maybe about, maybe about eight or nine years ago. And uh, since that time, the Fourniers have done a great job. They've invested in the equipment. They brought a uh, tractor tug into Penobscot Bay, which we have never had before. We've never had the benefit of that. We were always a single-screw-type port, which is uh, a bit of a old-school-type tugboat. So we, we, we kind of leapfrogged over twin-screw boats. We went right from single-screw tugs to azimuthing Z-drive tractor tugs. And for people that don't understand it, a, a, a Z-drive or azimuthing tugboat it has two propellers that can both rotate independently through 360 degrees. So the tug can go literally in any direction and with any amount of weight or force in any direction. They're a phenomenal ship docking tool, and they're a great, great addition to the port. And I really commend the Fourniers for putting that piece of gear uh, in, work, in operation up here in Penobscot Bay. Got a tour of uh, the tugs a couple years back at uh, Belfast uh, Boating uh, get together one Saturday morning, and uh, young Doug, who was captain of the tug yep. there, Doug, Doug runs the company. Yep. Yeah, he, he's barely thirty years old at yep. the present that, time, that, too, isn't he? Yep, a bit over thirty. Yep. Yeah, um, does a great job. Yeah, I said, Doug, you uh, must be pretty good at handling this. This thing uh, spin pretty good. He says, I can spin this thing in its own length in three seconds. I say, wow. <laughs> yeah. He <laughs> says, people standing on the back deck might not like it too much, but right. I can do it. Well, that's not a boast. He can do that. I mean, yeah. the, the, the way that he just literally makes that boat dance is, is unbelievable. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention about the Fourniers, and I think the listeners of Boat Talk will appreciate this, one of the pieces of equipment that they bought from the former owners was an old uh, YTB, a yard tug, a 2,000-horsepower um, single-screw tugboat. And, you know, between you know, with them getting the... Um, tractor boat up here. They didn't quite have the finances to get a second tractor boat or a new twin screw boat. So they took this single screw tug that they had bought and said, well, what can we do to make this a more effective ship docking tool? They actually shoehorned in, uh, I don't know if it's a six or 800 horsepower. It's at least 600 horsepower. It could be as much as 800 horsepower stern thruster into that single screw tugboat. Wow. Ooh. So now 
we have a single screw tugboat in effect that can do to a large degree what a tractor boat will do as long as when we're docking ships we're down below about 1.2 knots not a quarter or so or less that boat can get out on a 90 degree angle and stay ready for a full back if we should need it without putting any weight on the ship it's a pretty it's a pretty neat piece of equipment and the pilot really the pilots really like that cool how do you get out to the ship well, we uh, have a couple of different pilot stations on Penobscot Bay. Of course, we do the cruise ships in Bar Harbor as well. Um, on our western approach in and out of Penobscot Bay off the island of Monhegan, we have a long-standing tradition of using uh, fishermen from the island. So we still have a couple of different fishermen who we have contract relationships with that put us on and off the ships um, every, you know, 24-7, all kinds of weather, fair or foul. They're out there running us around, putting us on and off ships. And up in Bar Harbor, it's the same way as well. We have a local fisherman who does all the pilot work. On the eastern approach to Penobscot Bay, off of Matinicus Island, we have our own 48-foot uh, pilot boat that we keep in Rockland, the Penobscot pilot. Now, we get out to the ship. Uh, we're on a 48-foot boat yep. or a 40-foot-something you know, lobster boat. We're up right. against... Uh, 600, 700 foot ship now. Right. That's right. going, um, going what, six, six knots? We, yeah, we usually knots. have a boarding speed of seven knots. We seven find knots. works out best. Yeah, and uh, we've got to get you from the bridge of the little boat up to the bridge of the big boat. Right, uh, right. Speak of that, Dave. That's, right. get up That's there. called barking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's, uh, it, what, what happens, you, you literally have to lay the pilot boat alongside the the larger vessel you and we're all moving you yeah, were all moving the waves the water. are waving and right. you know the right. slop is slopping and right now hopefully the captain of the ship and the captain of the pilot boat have have made an arrangement to make a as good of a lee as possible uh, sometimes you can get a great lee sometimes if you've got a recently passing front you you've got wind on one side and sea from another so you really can't make a a nice lee but you try and get as good of a lee as you can by swinging the ship and then you bring that pilot boat alongside the larger vessel, there's a rope ladder that's thrown down the side of the ship. It's secured to the handrails of the deck of the ship, and then you climb up this ladder. Back uh, up, pilot. A rope ladder. We're not talking about a staircase uh, yeah. that's uh, on the side of the boat like the you know the cruise ship passengers might go up and down. Right, uh, right, right. No kind of staircase with a solid treads. And if the freeboard is over 28 feet, then they're required to rig what's, what's called a combination ladder, where they use their gangway, and they go down about 10 or 15 feet with that, but then the bottom 10, 15 feet uh, is all rope ladder. So you have to at least do 15 or 20 feet of rope ladder before you get to that combination ladder. But again, that's only when the freeboard is in excess of about 26 or 28 feet. So rope ladders are hard to climb. In January, they must be covered with ice too, right? Well, that's always a challenge is, you know, they call <laughs> on your way out on the pilot boat and they say, you know, you make arrangements to rig the pilot ladder, you know, 30, 45 minutes before the, the rendezvous. But you, know, you want them to get the ladder height right, but then you say, pull the ladder back up because you don't want to rig the ladder an hour before you board mm -hmm. and have it sitting down there in the bottom five feet are all ice. So that's, that's a huge problem is, is icy pilot ladders. It's mm -hmm. a real danger. Um, so you just always get on board. I mean, I would, uh, nobody's ever supposed to fall off. Uh, things ever go wrong? There, yeah, Dave? we've had two people go in the water over the course of the last 15 years or so, and uh, we have pretty good systems in place. We always operate our pilot boats with a deckhand standing by with life rings and a water light. Uh, our boat operators are consummate boat handlers, and in both instances, um, we were able to get pilots out of the water within moments. I think if you had to time it, I would say it was probably not much in excess of 60 seconds or 90 seconds. It was a pretty quick evolution. 
but the adrenaline's flowing pretty pretty quickly. It's amazing how much you could accomplish in a short time mm -hmm. in a situation like that. It's also danger of getting crushed between two boats. Yes, yes, that's that's yeah. Don't let go. <laughs> it's not. It's a tricky business. <laughs> yeah. What I'm saying. Yeah, uh, it very, is. fairly it dangerous. Is. And yeah, yeah. yeah uh, you'd have to have a knack for climbing rope ladders after. There's a while, a, there's I'm a guessing. timing. There is a sense of you you do get a sense of timing. One of the uh, one of the old old fishing captains that used to put us along when I was uh, early in the career used to advise me. He said, "Don't don't be rushed." He said, "It's going to look like, uh, you know, a maelstrom there with all the wind and waves and seas." He says, "But be patient, and you'll find that if you just once if you let the lobster boat get alongside the larger ship, even or the tugboat, even the things that are going up and down, if you're just patient and you watch the rhythm, there's going to be a moment there where everything will work out just right, and it takes a long time." But you do develop an eye for that. And I can't tell you how many times where I've gone out to a ship in rough conditions or worse is actually a tug and barge bringing a lobster boat alongside a 140-foot tugboat because at least a ship has got the weight and length. You're talking a tug towing an oil barge. It's only 140, 150 feet long. That's not a particularly big boat itself. So now you've got the little lobster boat going up and down and the little tugboat going up and down. Those are actually the toughest boarding jobs that we have are the tugs and barges, not the ships. And uh, some days you'll think that it's just going to be it's like, man, this is really going to be ugly. This is nothing good is going to come of this. And I've had boardings where even in six, eight foot seas, the pilot boat comes alongside. They get right next to that tugboat. They slow down. They match the speed. Everybody's going up and down. And then you get that one moment when everything's everything's right there, right there, lined up, and you step across. No water, no splash, no touching of the boats. It's like as they say, nothing but net. And you just scratch your head wondering, how did that happen under these <laughs> conditions? Just moving on a boat in general, you always got to wait for the roll. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a mistake people make. They're just going to take off and do whatever they do anyway. But, no, you've got to go yeah. with the motion yeah. of the boat. Yeah. We and have another phone call, up, so yeah. let's go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hey, good morning. Um, I'm just curious as the, uh, as the when the pilot talks about an old captain giving him that advice to wait, would that be Captain Stanley out of Monhegan? That would be Sherm Stanley Senior out of Monhegan Island. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. and you know, his son is doing it now, right? That is correct. Yeah. Um, there's an artist on Monhegan. Well, he's deceased now. But his name was Lee Court. Okay. And he did a great painting of the pilot climbing up that ladder beside a big tanker. It uh, was really nice. Nice what, painting. Now, is that on display anywhere? I've never seen that. Uh, don't know. It might be up in the museum. And, and what was the artist's name? Lee Court. <laughs> Lee Court. I'll have to look that. I'm not aware of that, but I'd love to see that. Yeah, yeah. It was it was really climbing up that rope ladder. Yeah. yeah pretty tough. Well, that's a that's a great job. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, thanks for thanks for adding the art. Where are you calling from this morning? Rockland. All right. Good morning. Thank morning. you. Thank yeah. you. That was Captain Stanley on the Fowler, best one of the best pilot boats we ever had. Double plank mahogany boat built up in Rockport, I believe. Outstanding boat. The Fallerope. Dave, let's, uh, uh, so much stuff to talk to you about being a pilot here. Let's back up and ask you the, what we call the boat talk question. Uh, what happened to you as a young child made you all silly about boats and stu <laughs> stuff, you know? I was really, really fortunate <clears throat> growing up. I had some grandparents who had a summer place down in, uh, on uh, Niantic Bay, Long Island Sound, the shoreline of Connecticut there, and I, I just grew up around the water. And I was really fortunate to have that experience as a young person, and then I was especially fortunate uh, growing up. My mom and dad are both educators, and when it came time to pick colleges and think about a career, um, 
you know, I was kind of going through the motions, as it were, you know, doing what everybody from Massachusetts did, filing, you know, applying to UMass and stuff like that. And I think my mom got a sense that I wasn't really thrilled about college. Knowing what it cost, she explained to me, you know, you really should be excited about doing this college thing. You should really be looking forward to this. What do you really want to do? And I said, geez, you know, I really like boats. I really like boats. I'd like to work on boats. I had no understanding fundamentally of what the Merchant Marine was. I, I didn't know anything about it at all. And uh, my mother actually was the one who took the time to go out and figure out there are these things called maritime academies. So um, we, we applied to Mass Maritime. We applied to Maine Maritime. I actually applied to the Coast Guard Academy and the Naval Academy as well. And um, got into Maine, got into Mass, got deferred at Coast Guard and Navy. And um, ended up going to Maine because we took a trip up here and I liked the campus so much. It was just such a phenomenal, phenomenal location and facility that really spoke to me. Much more appealing than Mass Maritime. And to my parents' credit, they, they never balked when I said I liked the Maine campus a lot better than Massachusetts, even though it cost them about four times more as an out-of-stater to go to Maine than it would have to go to Mass. And I'm so grateful that, that I got that support from them because that was the best thing I ever did, going to that academy. So that's kind of long, long story of how I got up to Maine and then just started riding with the pilots on vacations when I was doing my deep sea uh, work out in Alaska. I'd come home and got in with the pilots and made trips with them, trips, trips, trips for years and years and years. And when uh, Captain Hall from Camden retired, that was the opportunity that I got to go in full time. So you had, again, uh, you got to get some experience and you're going uh, uh, to Alaska for your ship. Yep ship yep. work, but, uh, but again, making uh, local connections and hanging out with the local pilots. Yep. That sounds pretty smart, Dave. <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I was really fortunate. I used to participate because I was involved with the academy. I used to participate in an event they have down there called the Retired Skippers Race, yeah. which you guys are familiar with. And there was a, there was a, there was a retired pilot, um, Captain Sam Gamash. And if anybody's listening from the Rockland area, that's a name that they're going to remember. Um, Captain Sam was a, a very, very well-known pilot and Prior to that, he had a career in the Coast Guard as the uh, commander of the Snohomish, which is a storied uh, old Coast Guard vessel that was stationed here for many years. And Captain Sam Gamash was sailing in that retired skipper's race, and I ended up becoming a crew member on his boat. And I forget what piece of hardware it was we won that year because they have about 18 different trophies they give out, which is one of the nice things about that race. But Captain Sam was really pleased and Really happy with that, and that was that, that helped out greatly to be able to be on Captain Sam's boat and get some hardware. Nice. Um, and, you know, I met the other pilots through, through Captain Sam, and kind of things went from there. That's another uh, boat talk lesson, you know, we like to point out around here, the best things. You know, you can find it through an ad in the paper, but basically local connections are, are what you need to, to get set up, especially in a place like down East Maine. Um, let's go sideways again. You mentioned that... Uh, you're bringing ships in and out of Searsport, um, in and out of Bucksport, to the Mill and Bucksport yes. as well, up the Penobscot River. Up to Bangor Brewery, yep. You also mentioned cruise ships going in and out of Bar Harbor, yep. Rockland too, I would imagine. A few into Rockland, and, and Bar Harbor is the largest cruise ship port north of Boston. We're up to about uh, just shy, I think, of 100 large cruise ships. It's actually over 100 if you include the small U.S. flag uh, cruise lines that don't take a pilot like um, the... Um, coastal, uh, let's see, what is it, the American Caribbean Cruise Line vessels, things like that. So they're up to about 120 vessels, I think, maybe even 130 in Bar Harbor. But the ones that we actually pilot is just shy of 100. The uh, fella in Italy there that crashed the Costa del Sol onto that rock at Costa the mouth. Costa Concordia. Costa Concordia, yeah. yeah, at the mouth of that harbor there. Uh, you've been on a few cruise ship bridges uh, 
This fellow apparently wasn't looking where he was going. He was running high speed. He was on the phone to his girlfriend at the time. He wasn't wearing his glasses. Um, they allege a possible party atmosphere on the vessel in general. Um, they say that the captain tripped into the lifeboat. And, you know, uh, what do you make of that at all, Dave, professionally know. speaking? Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, that just it. I don't even want to speculate. I really, there's enough people doing that. I'm really anxious to read the final reports that come out on that. I, I, I hear really it just am. come out. I looked for it on the web the other day. I heard about it on the news, but I couldn't find anything. Really? I, I haven't seen anything. Out. I haven't seen yeah. any. He can't come out of that with a captain's license. <laughs> well, no. And, you know, that, everything about that accident, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things you look at. I mean, the main thing with that is just that so many people died. Uh, it was just really 32 tragic. 32 people yeah, died. That's, that's the real tragedy. It's I mean, not it funny be, because of that. Yeah. Well, that's just it. It would be easy to joke, uh, you know, till the cows come home about that guy and his actions. But the bottom line is so many people died, and it was really, really needless. Um, you know, one thing that I've been expressing to people that this should point out is that um, the international community, the regulating agencies, everyone's really quick to talk up all of these really wonderful things we've got now, ISO, ISM, all these standards and procedures. If you go on any ship nowadays, you go up to the, they've got book racks and shelves and shelves of safety manuals and all these procedures and protocols and everyone's licenses are stamped with all kinds of special safety training that they've done. And yet there was nobody on the bridge of that ship that could stand up to that captain and say, no, captain, what you're doing is wrong, or that's not prudent, captain. He was definitely way off course, that's for sure. Yeah. So, you know, this, this whole thing about, oh, well, the ships are, you know, we've got all this great safety protocols now. Look at, look at this latest certification we've got from this international agency. It's window dressing. It's window dressing. There was nobody on that ship that was going to stand up to that captain. The passengers are on a cruise here, and they're in a special place, but they're, they've gone to sea, but they're in a very un... un uh, you know, they're not in the forecastle of an old square rigger, okay? They're, right. in, they're in a luxury hotel right. at sea. Um, there was all this stuff about why didn't they put them in the lifeboats. I've been taught that uh, you only enter a lifeboat, uh, you only step up into a lifeboat. It's the old joke, you know. Never abandon ship in, until you have to. Never jump out of the airplane until the last minute. Right. Um, the uh, un-seaman-like un, uh, way the whole thing was handled, uh, passengers, uh, crew, everybody, just absolutely stunning, let alone, again, a captain that tripped into a lifeboat and left the vessel. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing that I've uh, been reading about is that you can read a lot of different ratings for the food quality on board certain different cruise ships, but there's no rating out there for the, for the operational quality or safety of a particular cruise line. Um, and that would be something that would obviously be high on my mind if I was going to take my family on a cruise. But you you really don't know. I mean, you've got these large ships. They are internationally manned. You have people from 20, maybe 30 different nations on board uh, working in all the different departments. And you're talking about a very stressful situation, uh, ships healing over. There's obviously a, a crisis evolving, and, and uh, people tend to not keep their cool under such a situation. So... I don't know how that could be avoided. Unfortunately, this isn't the first time that a passenger ship has gone down and, and that type of behavior has, uh, has manifested itself where you know, some of the crew find themselves into the lifeboats before the passengers who are relying on the crew for exp uh, you know, experience and guidance. So it's, it's an unfortunate situation, and I'm going to be very curious to see what comes down the pike for regulatory changes as a result of this episode. 
It's the anniversary of the sailing of the Titanic right yeah. now. She'd never go down. Never, never, never. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We are doing boat talk this morning. Mike Joyce, Alan Sprague, and we got Dave Jelinason this morning from the Penobscot Bay Pilots. And let's get back to Penobscot Bay. It says in the uh, there's a article on the front page of the Bangor Daily News back on uh, March 29th. It says here that you're bringing up to 160 vessels yeah. into the Mac Point cargo terminal. Those are that's just liquid cargo vessels, possibly another uh, dozen to three dozen um, bulk cargo vessels. I, I think they got their uh, the total that I tallied for our um, records was 160 vessels. So the 160 is comprised of the Mac Point liquid bulk vessels and the dry vessels, as well as the 18 or so that go to Bucksport. So the whole total for Penobscot Bay was about 160, 165 vessels transiting the bay. That surprised me. That's yeah. a lot of vessels. There, there's been growth in the port, and this is the interesting thing about Searsport. It's not like Portland. You know, you come over the hill down in Portland, and you look out on a real thriving waterfront, and there's all kinds of cranes and docks and ships tied up, and it's no surprise when people hear about the amount of ship traffic in Portland Harbor because they see it. Well, if you look at where Mac Point is on Penobscot Bay, the only glimpse of Mac Point that you get from the road is a little tiny bit that you see when you're going down Route 1 just before you get into yeah. uh, downtown Searsport. As you're going downhill, you see maybe for 15 seconds the new dry bulk dock over there, and if there's a ship there, you see it. Otherwise, you don't see these vessels. So it's sort of been the history of Searsport has sort of been out of sight, out of mind. And people are surprised when they hear how busy Penobscot Bay is. It's been a growing port. It's been, it's been growing for about 10 years now. I drove down to Mac Point yesterday when I was at Hamilton Marine, and you can't. In the old days, you used to be able to drive down there, and yeah. you can't anymore. There's security uh, yeah. lane one, lane two, and a uh, razor wire and stuff. Um, um, these uh, 160 vessels that come in, what kind of flags are they flying? Oh, where typically, are they from? It was, you know, where they're from, what flags they're flying, and who's operating them have absolutely no correlation. I mean, a lot of the ships are Marshall Islands or, or you know, um, Different flags of convenience, as it were, wherever it's easiest Liberia. for you. Yeah, yeah. tax uh, Monrovia. Dodges, tax issues. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of right reasons for that, and th so that's where the ship is registered. And then where the crew is from is a completely different thing. You may have a crew that's you know the unlicensed the unlicensed staff might be from the Philippines, and the officers might be from Ukraine. Hmm. Do you ever have a, a language problem? You know, you have a language problem sometimes if you want to sit down and talk politics. Mm -hmm. You don't really have too much of a language problem when you say things Left and right. full ahead, full astern, hard to starboard, port 20. You know, you can make your point pretty well known. And that's really all you need to know mm. to get a ship up Penobscot Base, especially if you say it with emphasis. You know, full astern, pointing backwards, usually gets the idea across. But when you're, when you're talking about, you know, more real-world things, sometimes the language is a barrier. But in general, in terms of operations, language isn't, uh, isn't a problem. We're uh, talking about, let's concentrate on Mac Point and Searsport there. Searsport, uh, famous for having lots of uh, uh, ship captains in the old days. Searsport's never been that much. It's not really a harbor. Uh, it's just kind of a dent in the coast there for... Uh, um, recreational boats, it's, it's uh, you know, not, not much of a spot at all, but over there in the corner by Mac Point, Mac um, Point yeah, yeah there's, there's a little corner over there. Uh, we're talking 160 vessels coming in, dry and, and uh, wet cargoes. What, what is being landed from these ships? The, um, the liquid bulk cargo tends to be, as you would imagine, a lot of gasolines. Um, heating oil is a big commodity, diesel oil. Uh, I don't know if we're doing any jet down in Searsport. We might be doing a little jet. Most of the jet goes to Bucksport. Um, and we're even doing asphalt. 
down in Searsport. A lot of the asphalt for this part of the state, actually most of it, comes in through the port of Searsport. Next door to the liquid bulk dock at the dry bulk dock, we're getting things like primarily road salt. All the salt for the northern half of the state comes in through the port of Searsport. Uh, we're getting some pet coke, which is used as a uh, fuel down at, at uh, Dragon Cement. We're getting uh, a lot of windmill blades. We've received, I think there's 240 commercial wind farm, wind generators in the state of Maine, and I think almost 200 of them have come in through the port of Searsport. So that's been a real niche market that Sprague Energy's done an excellent job carving out, is, uh, is landing all of those components, the towers, the nacelles, the generators, and the blades for all of these uh, wind farms that have popped up. Um, so those, those, that's primarily what's been landing there in the last few years. The Port of Mac Point started uh, World War II-ish, I'm thinking, as a, they called it a, a defense fuels farm. There was Dow Air Force Base, Loring Air Force Base. used to be a pipeline that went up there. And now it's owned by Sprague uh, Energy, and, and they say it's one of their larger uh, terminals because it is um, capable of dry and wet goods, which is not, you don't find that everywhere. Right, right. And they uh, Sprague's actually been there, I think they've been there 100 years now. Uh, it started as a family company. They were bought out, um, I think, a few decades ago by a um, Swedish company, Axel Johnson, who operates it now. And uh, as you said, strategically, it's a great location for them. Uh, it's also, importantly, got the, uh, the terminus of the uh, Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic Railway right there, which is a huge, huge uh, marketing tool for them and a strategic asset for the port to have that rail going right down to the dock. Mm -hmm. Now, before we run out of time, we should quickly mention the brochure that you've made for other boaters yeah. in regards to uh, how to deal with, with the boats that you're piloting. Right. Why don't you uh, describe yeah, that? Yeah, it's a safe passage brochure, and anybody can, um, we'd be happy to send one down to anybody or send a bunch down to any groups like yacht clubs or power squadrons. It's called Safe Passage, and the subtitle is Better Understanding for Safer Boating on Penobscot Bay. And it's got a small chartlet in the middle that shows the routes that the ships travel in and out of the bay. Um, as you can see on chart 13, 302 and 309, we have a designated traffic lane. It's, it's technically called a recommended route that we follow when we're bringing these large vessels in and out of Penobscot Bay. And the Safe Passage brochures illustrates that and talks about how to get in touch with the ships on channel 16 or 13, how to avoid any conflicts with them, and the different uh, types of vessels that you might encounter on Penobscot Bay. So I'll leave some here at the station, but if anybody would like some of those sent down to them, I'd be happy to do that. They can ask for one by calling 548-1077, which is our office phone number. Also available on your website, too, right? Yeah, I believe it is. Yeah. Uh, which is Penobscot Bay Pilots. Pen Bay Pilots. Pen Bay Pilots. Dot com. Yeah. As a delivery sailor, I'll give you some advice. If you see a big ship coming and you say, he's off my starboard side, he's got to give way to me. He's not going <laughs> to give way to you. You've got to stay out of their way is, is uh, just the best advice around those big ships. All right. We have one last phone call trying to squeak here at the very end. Good morning. Welcome squeak, to Boat Talk. Squeak, squeak. Hey, Boat Talk, this is Dog Talk. want to talk to you about Cat Talk. <laughs> Where's our kickback, man? I'm expecting goods hey, or, you know. I hate to break your heart, but that was an April. Fools thing that our that our master Matthew put together, and it was so professional it sounded real. <laughs> but no, they're still looking for for a crazy cat lady to do something, but it's not on it. Mondays at nine. I don't know how to take those people at the best of times, John. Thanks for thanks for laying that out. <laughs> okay. We are finishing up Boat Talk here. Let's get, get to it real quick. Uh, there are, right now at Mac Point, there's about uh, 30 tanks they're proposing. One big one bringing in right. propane gas. Right. Um, 
I was also surprised to see that that uh, it said in the paper we're only talking four to six ships a year for to feed that proposed tank. Yep, that's what they're estimating is four to six vessels a year. What? Where would those ships be coming from? Uh, you know, what kind of flags they'd have on them? Are they coming foreign or um, things that move between American ports come in American ships? Um, yeah, that's 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 true. But we have hardly any of that traffic um, in in. Uh, Searsport, most of the domestic stuff is like tug and barge, and they'd be bringing up refined product from the refiners down in New Jersey. Right. So primarily our ships are foreign ships. What we get most of in Penobscot Bay are foreign vessels. And um, the the LPG vessels, um, they're going to be foreign flagships like pretty much all the oil-carrying vessels are. Uh, I believe the product's going to be coming in from the North Sea is what we've been told. But four to six ships are what we're anticipating to get. They're actually, um, we're working right now with a, a company down in um, Newport, Rhode Island called Maritime Simulation Institute, and we're actually modeling the largest of these proposed LPG vessels to come to Mack Point. We're going to model the ship, and we're going to go down in the month of June and be doing simulations of docking, undocking, and determining weather parameters, safe weather windows for handling these ships at Mack Point. Yeah, interesting. Just as an informational aside, I got a propane delivery the other day. I heat my water for uh, washing and cook my food with propane. I got a bomb outside my window. And I went into, uh, well, I asked the Weber people the other day, where's this propane come from? They said, we don't know. We get it from Dead River. So I went into the Dead River company the other day in Ellsworth, and I asked the manager in there, I said, where does this propane come from? And apparently um, their main supply at the present time, propane is a byproduct of uh, the distillation product uh, of any refinery. You're making gas, you're going to get different kind of uh, propane would be one of the byproducts there. Nowadays, uh, it mostly comes from a refinery in Sarnia, Ontario. Right. It comes by rail, rail. Yeah. to uh, storage uh, the other side of Bangor, and then there's more storage in North Ellsworth, for instance. Right. The Dead River Company says that uh, propane is a growth area for them. They can't get enough, and it's... Uh, um, again, uh, uh, a growing uh, area of their market for them at the present time. And while they don't have any relation to the DCP people that are proposing the uh, tank there, they would certainly be interested in the supply. Right, right. So, well, I know the National Park Service seems to like the propane-powered buses, so you'd like to think that there's going to be more of it used in the future, not less. Energy is uh, an interesting thing. Uh, a gas tanker just got blown up on the L.A. freeway the other day. I mean, how do we allow those things out on the road driving around? A plane just fell on houses in Virginia. How yeah. do we allow people to fly over us? The, yeah. the yeah. wires on the side of the road, they're full of electricity. They're very dangerous. All this energy, uh, again, it's not, there's no free rides. And, uh, wow, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Risk it? management is yeah. what it's all about. Yeah. They're piping us out. Uh, Dave, join us. Uh, Penobscot Bay Pilots. Boy, we barely covered that in an hour. We can talk to you for another hour. And our, our uh, proposed uh, navigation thing, we've just gone past Lincolnville on the chart here. And uh, coming up the side of Islesboro. So uh, we've enjoyed it very much. Uh, Dave, Dave, join us. Penobscot Bay Pilots. Boat Talk, second Tuesday of the month. And on uh, BoatTalk.org and WERU.org. We're going to put this uh, program be podcast up there. We're also going to put up a uh, former Boat Talk program, one of Dave's uh, uh, partners, Skip Strong, wrote a book called In Peril. He rescued a uh, tug in distress with a loaded oil tanker, won the largest marine salvage award in history because it was a space shuttle booster on the tanker. That's right. Check out That's the, right. the uh, WERU website guy. in the next couple of days. We hope to have that up there for you. Thanks. WERU needs $125,000 to replace our old and broken radio transmitter. 
and we only have $20,000 to go to reach our goal. Please help to keep the station on the air.